Today's episode is brought to you by Freshly. We all live busy lives, and unfortunately, there aren't enough hours in the day to get everything done. Freshly is the easiest and most convenient way to eat healthy, no matter what life throws your way. Freshly's team of chefs create all-natural, gluten-free dinners and deliver them fresh to your door. So even if you get stuck at work late, you can still come home to a delicious dinner cooked by a chef. No more worrying about having to figure out what's for dinner, and especially no mess to clean up after. Their menu is created by chefs for people who want to eat healthy but are living busy lives and don't always have the time to shop, cook, or clean. Customize your weekly meals from their constantly changing, rotating menu of more than 30 chef-crafted options. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Check out this week's menu created by Freshly's Chefs and get $25 off your first order of six chef-cooked dinners, plus free shipping by going to Freshly.com slash upsell. You'll feel so relieved to come home to a chef-cooked meal every night with Freshly. That's Freshly.com slash upsell for $25 off your first order. Order today to see what life is like when you no longer have to think about dinner. Welcome to the Eater Upsell, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Amanda Clute, the editor-in-chief of Eater. I'm joined, as always, by Dan Janine. Hi, Dan. Hey, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm all right. Uh, Every week on the Upsell, we dive into a single food topic, or we talk to a food person, or we talk about something that we were talking about on site. This week... We are interested in the disappearance of gay bars in America. And we are talking about that today because we just published our first ever documentary on Eater Chicago. It is called Boys Town. In Boys Town, Zach Stafford, who is the editor-in-chief of Into, Grinders online magazine, uh, talks about gay bars, gay restaurants, and bakeries, and how they're changing in America's oldest gayborhood. So we had Zach on to talk a little bit more specifically about gay bars across the country. Yeah, and how they're changing because of gentrification, but also because of the broader acceptance of gay culture and the commodification of gay lifestyle. If you like this episode, we would really appreciate it if you subscribe to it on the podcast platform of your choice. Maybe toss it some stars and maybe toss us an email at upsell at eater.com. And stay tuned after we talk to Zach because we're going to be talking to Megan McCarran, our special correspondent out in Los Angeles, to chat a little bit about lesbian bars and how those are also disappearing. So let's get into our conversation with Zach. Hi, Zach. Thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, I was looking forward to this. Can you tell us how long you've been going to gay bars and maybe a little bit like how they've changed over your lifetime? Yeah, for sure. So I have been going to, I would say I've been going to gay bars for about a decade now. I'm 28, so I started going to them at 18, legally and illegally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I'm from Tennessee, and a lot of the bars there are 18 plus. So when I was in high school, I could get into the gay bars um, and the gay clubs. So I used to go to one in downtown Nashville. Um, So that was my first experience, and those were really special because Nashville is not kind of like a gay city. Um, so there are only like a hand, there's only one or two really there at the time. And I was a college student that had a fake ID. So I would go to Boys Town a lot. And, uh, and I'd spent a lot of time <laughs> in those bars, maybe more than I should have. Um, but for me, they were just this like really incredible place where I didn't have to think about being gay. It just was something I could be and never be questioned for and it kind of expect everyone else to be gay around me. So I think being 18, 19, it was a really big part of my 
growth and kind of my own uh, confidence in myself. So I, I've always been a big fan of them, um, but they are changing, of course, these days. And for those who don't know, Boys Town is a historic gay neighborhood in Chicago. Yes, it's the first kind of official neighborhood that's ever been sanctioned by a U.S. government. And I think in the world, too. So uh, many decades ago, the city of Chicago said, you know, this area is not only a place where a lot of LGBT people live, but it's really important to them because of their community centers, their bars, their restaurants. So they literally built pillars <laughs> that are rainbows <laughs> and sanctioned it to be uh, a neighborhood. And it's the very first one. I see a lot of articles online and in magazines about how gay bars are disappearing. Do you do you see that? Is that is that true? Gay bars in queer spaces? Oh, completely. And you know, for me, uh, I'd be remiss to not bring up the fact that I'm the editor of Grinder, which people blame for that. <laughs> so people. Blame. So Grinder is to blame. <laughs> <laughs> so Grinder, that's kind of the narrative that's out there, but it's a little more complicated. Um, so gay neighborhoods or gay bars are on the decline globally. Um, in kind of major cities that have had them for a while. And that's for a multitude of reasons, but one of them is primarily that things that cultures change a lot. People due to openness, due to coming out earlier, the bars mean something different um, to young people now than they did even 10 years ago when I was going to them because we all have smartphones. And for you to feel like you have community, you don't need to drive an hour to Nashville like I did to find someone like you. You can download an app. So the kind of urgency to be at a bar has kind of disappeared. And then also people can make any space through the apps, a gay bar, a gay club. Um, and you kind of now understand that gay people are everywhere. And that is directly impacting the bars, which are disappearing. And if they're not disappearing, they're changing into kind of caricatures of themselves, of what you expect a gay bar to be. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what, what is a caricature of a gay bar? Yeah, so people like to think of gay bars to be one, just drag clubs, mm -hmm. um, to be heavy drinking, dancing, and just kind of party all the time. And historically, that's been true, but they've also been sites of incredible resistance. Um, the entire gay rights movement began at Stonewall, which was a gay bar. And that's where a lot of political actions happened, where they fought it back against the police, where they organized. And that happened even in places like Los Angeles, which was, there was a bar called Black Hat, or a restaurant called Black Hat, that that organizing would happen. So because we didn't have a lot of public spaces, people would use bars to do everything from meet a boyfriend or girlfriend to kind of think of the revolution. So these days, people don't like to think about that <laughs> as much. <laughs> um, they like to think of the drag queens and RuPaul's Drag Race. So bars, especially in Boys Town, are beginning to lean really heavily into the camp factor, into the entertainment factor. And uh, there are some theorists that call it kind of the Disneyland effect that for these spaces to survive, they need to become kind of like entertainment spaces or tourist spaces. So places that you travel to and expect a certain thing. You expect a vodka soda. You expect there to be TVs with music videos on. You expect a certain type of bar food. Um, so they're just replicating. And the reason why this is happening isn't because gay people are thinking of gay bars as one way. It's because straight people are thinking of gay bars in one way. And that's where a lot of business is coming from, is that as we see equality happen across the country, more allies and straight people are interested in going to gay spaces, um, but they want a certain type of experience. So the gay bars are really trying to cater to what their expectations are, which is drag and pop music and not any of this political stuff. What do you think gets lost when these bars start catering more to the straight audience? You know, for me, I think they, the spaces don't feel as safe anymore. So... 
you know, when I was 18 in Tennessee, um, Play Night Club was the only place I went to for a long time where I knew going there that, you know, 90% of the people here are gay. And if I flirt with someone, if I go up to a guy, I, I know that if he turns me down, it's not because he's straight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's because he doesn't like me or all these other reasons. And I could handle that. The straight thing, you know, can get dangerous because of gay bashings, especially in the South. And as these things change and these spaces become more sanitized, and more people go there just to explore, and it's kind of voyeuristic, you kind of feel that you're losing that sense of omni-presence of gayness that used to feel like a protection, or at least something that drove you to go there. And that is making us less and less likely to go to gay bars. I live in Los Angeles now, and I find myself going to <laughs> a lot more straight or kind of mixed crowds than the gay bars, even. Um, and that's because of this, because of when I do go to West Hollywood, per se, and uh, Los Angeles, which is one of the most famous neighborhoods too. It's mostly bachelorette parties, or it's a lot of kind of. They even shoot re- shoot reality TV shows there now for Bravo about being gay there, um, and it's kind of like it feels like Disneyland. And you know, when I'm going out for a drink, or if I want to go flirt with someone, I don't want it to feel like an amusement park because my <laughs> life isn't one. <laughs> so <laughs> that's what I think we're losing in this kind of this transition of the spaces. Was there a moment when you started to feel things uh, things change? Yeah. Um, well, I think there was a moment. Yeah, I do, actually. I think I, when I was living in Illinois and Chicago, um, as the gay rights movement was kind of really revving up, I would say 2010, 2011, um, I think the change was most apparent there because the change became kind of a site of political uh, resistance again. Um, a lot of bars in Boys Town, for example, started putting up signs saying that if you're straight and you're having a bachelor or bachelorette party, you can't come into the bars Mm -hmm. because we're currently in the midst of this huge battle to get federal rights to get married. And we all found it, many people found it incredibly offensive that people would come in and celebrate their marriages when we couldn't get them. And because of that action, it became very apparent because people were getting blocked. There were news reports about it. You started to see that it was happening a lot around the country and around Chicago. And then you're like, oh, wow, all of those groups of women aren't lesbians. They're straight women coming here to celebrate. (laughs) And then you start realizing, like, how not everyone around you is gay or queer. And and for me, that's when I started being like, oh, wow, this is changing. And then they kept arriving and they kept arriving. And then some of the restaurants and bars in Chicago specifically that um, did let them stay and go, uh, let the bachelorette parties go, they started building businesses around it. So there's a place in Chicago called Kit Kat Lounge. That is like the most popular place in Chicago to take a bachelorette party. <laughs> and when this was all happening, they're like, you know what? All these other bars are not letting you in. Come to us. And they like launched a new menu. They have a, like they made their food a little better. They expanded the seating. Uh, drag shows were all the time. And it's still that way. And that's kind of the remnants of that moment where we were like, are we going to get marriage equality or are we not? And some bars that wanted bars to be how they always imagined they'd be put a flag in the sand and said, you know what, we're no longer going to allow this happen. Then others pivoted and accepted all this business. And the ones that pivoted to accept all that business are kind of thriving now. And the Hmm. others are closing, which is what you're seeing happen. So they aren't being rejected by the gay community because of the decisions they made? No, I mean, some are, some do. So there were some bars, um, like I remember living in Chicago and people were very upset with Kit Kat 
because it was doing this. And I know a lot of people that don't go to Kit Kat because of this. So they go to other bars. So there does in Boys Town, which is a mile of bars. There's still, for those that remember, kind of a line in the sand for, okay, these bars supported us. These bars are interested in the money. And that's still playing out today. You've talked a lot about the gay versus straight dynamics, but what about gentrification and the rich versus poor? I know you you explored that a lot in your reporting for us. It's interesting. So gentrification is a huge part of these spaces disappearing because there's some theories out there that say, you know, a process of gentrification begins with you have a low income area that's probably uh, people of color, mostly Latino or black. And then you have artists move into that area. And I put that in quotes because uh, artists many times refers to LGBT people. Right. <laughs> so you have people who live on the fringes of mainstream society enter these low-income uh, minority spaces and they, they kickstart the process of gentrification. So they move there, they make their home safe and then their neighbor becomes their best friend that's an artist that looks like them and they're not from that community and it builds and builds and builds. And then it hits this tipping point especially with gay men moving into the area where then the neighborhood becomes really gay when a gay bar opens up, and then another gay bar, then a gay restaurant, and so on and so forth. And then they slowly, because of the fact that these folks are not part of a racial minority class many times, are getting paid more so they can invest more in their property, and thus the value starts going up. So then the area it starts spreading, um, and that's called homo gentrification, as a theorist <laughs> that calls it that. And he sees that as step one. So um, the gays do it, they make the value go up, and as they do it, they, they kind of attract a lot of like white uh, middle to upper middle class liberals in the area. So Seattle's a great example of this in Capitol Hill. So they see it and they're like, oh, my gay best friend, my gay coworker, they're living in this area and, they, and there's this really cool boutique that their friend opened and we should move there because we're like the good liberals, we listen to NPR. <laughs> so then they move in <laughs> and then they start having children. And then that means there's a more demand in the schools and the schools get more money and then, the t- and then it goes on and grows and grows and grows. And so what happens is that it makes this transition from single gay artists to multi-family, straight, uh, multi-person straight family is the need for different types of economies changes. So you see a shift from bars to restaurants um, and then certain types of restaurants that are family friendly. Then the bars aren't staying open as late because then there's more people living in the area that want curfews and file noise complaints. Mm -hmm. So you see it kind of spin out and neighborhoods find themselves in the middle of that because during that process of gentrification, there's a a few decade moment where they are a safe space for a minority community that came there because that was the only place they could go. And you see them pushed out. So that's a lot of the battles you see right now. When you see a gay bar closing, that is not kind of a, a cause of gentrification, but it's more of a symptom of that it's already in process. And you see a lot of activists kind of rally around bars as they close to be like, this has gone too far. We need to make sure this stays open because if these disappear, it makes way for new real estate, new development, a target. In Boys Town, you, you're like seeing that because um, like a block away from one of the most famous clubs, Spin, a target just opened. Wow. And then up the street, a bathhouse that's been there for 30 years is becoming condos. And that's all because rent eventually was driven up and now no one can afford to live there and they leave. And then what replaces them is never gay. We'll be right back with Zach Stafford, but first a word from our sponsor this week, ZipRecruiter. 
A fresh new year has begun, and you're setting goals for your business. It's extremely difficult to reach them without the right people on your team, and ZipRecruiter has transformed how you go about finding them. ZipRecruiter posts your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then, ZipRecruiter actively looks for the most qualified candidates and invites them to apply. They even review every application to identify the top candidates, so you never miss a great match. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter.com get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, Dan. Free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. And now... Back to the show. And what's happening to the smaller bars, like the ones out in Nashville that you went to originally? Oh, they're completely mixed now. I was in Nashville the other day, and um, <laughs> I, was at, I was at Play Night Club, and there, I would say half the bar was straight. Wow. Um, and it was really incredible to see. And that's how those bars are kind of surviving in a place like Nashville, where... Let me count. There's one, there's one, two, three, there's three bars, I think, in Nashville for, uh, that are LGBT. And now they're all becoming these like broadened bars, like dance club, drag bar, um, but not a gay bar. Is that kind of the, I don't know if I want to say ideal, but is that a good scenario to be in where you have the queer centric space where straight people can still go and feel accepted, but it's not necessarily catering to them. It's not like a disnified version or a commodified gay space. It's there's like pluses and minuses to it. So there's a, it's good for longevity. So I think play nightclub in Nashville is incredibly important for people who are queer in the Nashville area. So like Tennessee is very close to, Tennessee touches seven states. When I lived there, it was very normal for if you live in a rural area for your boyfriend to live in Mississippi or Alabama. Hmm. And you drove the two hours to get to them because it's pretty accessible to other states. So having a space like play, even if it isn't just only gay, is still really, really, really important. But the downside to it is what happens after a while, if you don't keep centering gay people in that place or privileging them over others. And an example of that I know from my own reporting is in Seattle with Capitol Hill, where that was a gayborhood for many, many years. Even the gay mayor who just stepped down, that's where he called home for decades and kind of a very famous place to go for restaurants, for activism, for the LGBT center. And what they're seeing recently due to, you know, I think it's Amazon has built its campus there. It went through, I think it's called hypergentrification. Like it changed within a few, <laughs> all these great words, changed within a few years. And what happened, they just overwhelmed the area. And the gay bars are still there, but other restaurants start popping up because they want the tech money. So they start sprouting up everywhere. And because it's such a center to the city now, you get a lot of bridge and tunnel people coming from the suburbs in who don't realize that Capitol Hill was always a gayborhood. And we're seeing a lot of gay bashings happening. So Seattle has some of the highest rates of hate crimes in the country, reported hate crimes. And it's because, like, when you do start broadening too far and not taking care of your kind of 
your core values, which is that you're a space for queer people to come and feel safe. And instead you're worried about, you know, we're a place that centers queer people, but like bring your cousin, bring your nephew, bring all these people. And let's like talk about the gay thing, but let's not really talk about the gay thing. These things happen. And we, that's why pride flags are so important and all this other kind of um, accessory accoutrement that you see on gay bars that are so explicit in naming that space. And people always think that's like a, just a marketing thing, but it's really to be, to warn people who are anti-gay that like you're walking into a place that's not for you. Um, if that's not meant just for you and you have to respect these people. And so when you see kind of gentrification of these places and they become really popular just neighborhoods as just a neighborhood, you see violence start seeping in. And that's what I'm always looking at as a reporter is, you know, gentrification can be great for some people and like making more people welcome at gay bars is fantastic, but what do we lose? And a lot of times it is safety. Um, and that's not a gay bar I really want to go to if that happens. Is it the case that either bars start to accept mixed crowds or they fall off and that's why we see the decreasing numbers of total gay bars in the country? Uh, yeah, I would agree. I would say if they are, I think a symptom of this is if you see like niche bars, so like certain leather bars for the mm. leather community, um, they are starting, they're maybe declining a little faster. So they're not able to pivot to be broader because they are so niche, which makes them also uh, expensive in many ways. So you're seeing that really drive some of those places. That's why like a bathhouse where men historically have gone to have sex with each other. Um, there, a decade ago, there were 200 of them. I think right now there's 70 of them in the country. Um, huge declines. Um, and that's because they can't broaden. And that's what we're seeing as the true problem here with the gentrification is that there seems to be this kind of thing being held over a lot of gay bars heads is like if you don't become like normative if you don't become more expansive if you don't if you don't think about everyone else besides gay people which you were built for then you may be hurting your business and they do fail eventually um and that's where the apps come into play people are going to gay bars less because they're not the only place you meet a gay person so that i mean the it's such a depressing thing to hear about, but it is positive to know that this can happen in private spaces. And even if you were talking about the hookup apps as being problematic, they've also created this way for people to connect outside of nightlife venues. Completely. And that is kind of the silver lining is that we do have private space. We have private physical space. We have private digital space. And we are more connected than ever. And that's why you're seeing people come out earlier and earlier. So I think something that is kind of controversial um, and while I love gay bars and nightclubs, with what you're seeing with the coming out and the gay rights movement right now, it's not necessarily a terrible thing that they're disappearing completely. Like young people are not wanting to come out as trans less. Gay boys are not wanting to go on dates less in high school. They're actually doing the opposite. So the bar isn't as integral to kind of a queer movement anymore. Um, and that is sad as someone that loves the idea of having queer space and I'm very nostalgic, but th this kind of aspect of it isn't bad. Um, what is bad is that these neighborhoods are still really important for those that don't have private space. So homelessness in LGBT communities is still huge. 40% of all youth that are homeless do identify as LGBT. So having a bar or a neighborhood is really important to those people who need to have a, like a very clear space they can go to and can be there and feel safe. Um, so it's kind of, but if you have money, 
then you win in this battle. So it's super complicated just with anything with gentrification. You know, people aren't complaining that they can go to SoulCycle all the time if they can afford SoulCycle. <laughs> the people who are complaining are who can't afford SoulCycle and they have to move out of their, their neighborhood. Right. So... Well, thank you for talking this through with us. Uh, I think it's, yeah. it is really complex. And, and I really want to recommend to our audience to please go watch the documentary Boys Town starring Zach Stafford. It's on ear.com right now. And uh, go check out Into. Yeah, please do. I think that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Zach. Thanks, Zach. Thank you. Nice chatting. So the conversation we just had with Zach and the stories we told in the Boys Town documentary mostly center on gay men. And I wanted to call up Megan McCarran because she can speak a little bit to disappearance of lesbian spaces and lesbian bars uh, in L.A., but also across the country. So Megan McCarran, you are our special correspondent based out in L.A., Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Have you noticed a significant rise in the disappearance of gay bars and more specifically lesbian bars? Um, I don't know if my personal experience is super relevant, but it's a really well-covered topic in the media that just a lot of, especially lesbian spaces, are disappearing. And, you know, across the country, there's very few lesbian bars left. There's very few of these sort of lesbian-owned bookstores left, or sometimes they're feminist bookstores, but often they are still lesbian-run and owned. As someone who was coming out and, like, you know, living in various American cities, I guess there was... When I lived in L.A., the first time around when I was young and I was doing the bar thing, there was no lesbian bar to go to in L.A. There were just girls' nights that we sort of would all show up at different gay bars at different nights to find, you know, all the other queer women. New York has a couple, but it's it's hard to find those spaces. And it has been for at least as long as I have been sort of an adult and like coming out. And I think that's another piece of this puzzle is a lot of these lesbian bars are actually opened and owned by women generation older than me. So queer millennial women, for a lot of reasons, have not been able to open these spaces or maybe, you know, just don't even have the access to the capital for it or cities have gotten so much more expensive. There's probably a lot of factors why that's not happening. But I would say there are definitely less lesbian businesses opening than there are ones closing. Do you think the the rise of dating apps has had any effect on this? It's it's possible. I would say when I went out to lesbian like events like girl nights, especially in LA when I was young and single, I was looking for a girlfriend or at least someone to hook up with. But more importantly, I was actually looking for friends in a community. I was new to the city, happened to meet one, you know, fellow alumni of my school who was a gay woman. She invited me to come hang out with her friends. And that's what I was there for. You know, there's maybe someone I had a crush on or maybe there was someone who I would try to talk to. But really, I came every week to hang out with other queer women and feel like a space belonged to us. You know, this was also when the L word was on. So there would be L word watch parties or, you know, we would just all hang out and talk about people's dreams of screenwriting and their struggles in the film industry as queer women. So I think there's a lot more in these spaces than dating. And I 
think the community piece is what people keep coming back for. Right. So even if people don't need to go to a lesbian bar or a gay bar to find someone to hook up with, and even if it's not as dangerous to be in those spaces anymore, they're still necessary for the community building aspect. Yeah. I mean, now I will say that lesbians have this reputation and I don't think it's completely wrong that like, once we sort of couple up, we tend to really kind of go super domestic and nest and maybe not go out as much. I would say that hasn't really been my experience, but I think it is, you know, it's, it's definitely a dynamic and, you know, certainly owners of lesbian bars will sort of say like, yeah, people come, but then they find a girlfriend and then they go hide out with their four cats for six months, you know, so (laughs) it's, it's not, not a factor, I guess. Um, and maybe now I'm like forgetting how lovesick I was at 22 for some really hot girl that I knew I would only see on Wednesday nights at like one bar. Mm -hmm. So, you know, (laughs) that's definitely also there. (laughs) Right. Uh, what about the, I don't know, the commodification of gay culture, how now you have gay nights and drag nights at bars that are not necessarily geared towards straight people, but very welcoming of straight people and, and kind of there for them to I know, observe and watch. You know, I think it's it's a complicated issue. When I lived in Austin, there was a row of gay bars and I remember going to them a few times and, you know, certainly it would have been really hard for me if I had been single or just looking for someone to date to meet a girl there because it felt like it was a lot of gay men and then a lot of women who were clearly there with the gay men, whether or not they were queer, I don't know. I'm sure I could have like chatted with someone and they would have been cool with that, but it didn't feel like a space for queer women, you Mm -hmm. know? And I think this impacts queer women, especially because when we talk about the commodification of culture and we talk about people coming into gay spaces, more often my sense is what we are talking about is straight women coming into spaces for gay men. Mm -hmm. You don't see a lot of straight men coming into spaces for queer women. That dynamic just isn't there in the same way. Right. It's more like bachelorette parties at drag clubs. Yeah. And, you know, there's sort of this tension within the nightlife world already, like where gay men for a lot of reasons, have more bars, have more clubs, go out to those clubs more for reasons, you know, ranging from like, they are socialized in a way where it's okay to go out every night or like to hook up with a lot of people. And there's not like any sort of cultural, there's different cultural hangups there. And also gay men tend to have more money than a lot of gay women. So there's already that sort of dynamic at play. And I think it's telling that Los Angeles in 2005 and even now doesn't have, you know, a lesbian bar, but has a lot of gay bars. But then if you try to go in for a mixed night and it's gay men and then a lot of women who appear to be straight identified, that's sort of another complicating factor, I think, for queer identified or lesbian women to be going to those spaces. Do you think there's also the factor that queer lifestyle is more readily acceptable in the mainstream? Maybe there's, is there less of a need for these types of spaces? You know, I think the need has shifted. I don't know if it's gone. I think there's less of, there's less negative pressure pushing people into these spaces. 
people aren't in the closet as often in the same way. And spaces like this are certainly no longer subject to police raids, which was something that happened a lot in gay bars. Um, you know, they were still illegal spaces and policed spaces that isn't happening anymore. And yeah, I can go out to a restaurant or a bar with my girlfriend. We can hold hands and we can feel mostly comfortable. But I do think there's still sort of softer pressures and also just a craving for community that we still really do need these spaces. And just the fact that usually if I go out with my girlfriend, we're the only lesbian couple in that bar or that restaurant or that cafe. And that gets lonely and you always feel a little bit like maybe this space isn't quite for you. You're welcome, but you're not the ideal customer always maybe. And so I do think these spaces are still needed. I do think maybe as everyone has become more out and can go out into the world, we now as like a larger queer community have to redefine our idea of what we need from queer businesses. And maybe that is still in progress. And since there isn't that sense yet, there's less of them. I don't know. Awesome. Well, thank you for your insight, Megan. Of course. Thanks for having me. What did you come away with from these conversations? I think what I learned through these interviews and also through watching the documentary is how complicated this issue is. I assumed it was just gentrification. Neighborhoods got richer and then the targets move in, etc. And really, the acceptance of gay lifestyle is a huge factor here. And so that's kind of nice. But as Zach and Megan explained, you do lose something when you can't have these communal spaces for your community. Next time you are in one of these spaces, will you feel differently? I guess I don't go to these spaces that often, and maybe that's a good thing. Uh, I think it makes me think about how there are spaces that shouldn't be for me and that I shouldn't be going to, and that's fine. Yeah, it's complicated. Thanks, everyone, for listening to The Eater Upsell. Make sure you go to youtube.com slash eater and check out Boys Town or Eater's Chicago page. Mm -hmm. Check out the full documentary with Zach Stafford. And thank you so much to our studio team, Miles Yule, Paige Bethman, Carrie Clements, Alex Allreich, and Pedro Oliveira for helping with this podcast. And thank you to you for listening. See you next week.